please turn in your Bible to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. And we're going to be picking it up in verse 11 down through the end of the chapter. We begin to deal with a subject that's everyone's favorite subject, the issue of submission. So 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, I will have the scriptures up here for you. There are some paper Bibles on the table out in the middle of the sanctuary. If you'd like one, please grab one if you don't have one with you. Beginning in verse 11, let's read together. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as those who are sent by him for the purpose of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice, but servants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if, because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer for it, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who bore, excuse me, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. God, thank you this morning for the reading of your word, and as always, we ask that you would be our teacher and that you would help us to understand these things, that you would help us to understand them then and now, and how these things apply to us even today as believers living in the 21st century in a world that is anything but friendly to Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a story, a true story, of an American missionary couple that had spent many decades of faithful service on the continent of Africa. They were coming back to the United States. They were traveling by ship. 
And on board that ship with them was a very important diplomat who received VIP treatment during the voyage, while the missionary couple simply stood back and watched the fanfare from their third-class uh, cabin. Upon arrival in New York City, a crowd and a band gathered to receive the politician. And when he walked down the gangplank, music and loud applause erupted as his motorcade whisked him away. Then quietly, with no fanfare, no attention, no music, the missionary couple walked arm in arm down the gangplank, taking their first steps on American soil in over 30 years. After some silence, the husband turned to his wife and said, Honey, it doesn't seem right after all these years that we would have nobody to greet us. While that man got such a grand reception, the wife put her arms around her husband and gently reminded him, but honey, we are not home yet. Peter begins this by saying, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. Once again, Peter reminds us that we are not of this world that we are not going to find any satisfaction or any hope in this world. We will only find our hope, as we sang in that song, in heaven, in the presence of Jesus Christ. Our hope is in heaven. But as we walk through this world, there are some things that God gives to us in his word to help us understand how do we walk. What is the proper attitude and mindset that we have or we should have about God and about the world. I think it was two weeks ago I began the message by looking at a number of scriptures that talk about how this world is under the influence of Satan, uh, that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, that he is the prince of the power of the air, and that the whole world is going after him. You see, if you're not born again, if you're not a believer, if you haven't believed in Jesus Christ and put your hope and your faith in him, then plainly and simply you are a servant of Satan. You belong to his philosophies and his way of thinking. And Peter is here saying to these pilgrims, these people, remember as we began the study, we looked at a map and up in the northern regions of what is today modern Turkey, in your Bible map in the back, it points to Cappadocia, Galatia, all the, the northern regions of that area, that the, the Christians, after 30 years of being in the church, are now scattered because Rome and other persecutions had come against Christians, and they had literally left everything behind and tried to find a place to live out their lives that <clears throat> hopefully wouldn't be as severe and... and against them as they were where they originally fled from. But as is always true, because the world is against Christ, that persecution and that lack of acceptance of Jesus Christ caught up with them. Remember, Paul writing to Timothy said, all those who desire to live in godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So he says here, I beg you, beloved, as sojourners and pilgrims, reminding them that we are just passing through this world, this world is not our home, his exhortation or his injunction to them is abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. What is he talking about here? 
He's talking about that age-old battle that we as Christians have. We are redeemed beings living in unredeemed flesh. And as long as we are living on this earth, on this side of heaven, we will have fleshly lusts to contend with. And these fleshly lusts are not just something that we contend with. He says here, they wage war against the soul. Isn't it true? If you have or you've ever had what could be termed as a besetting sin, something you just keep struggling with over and over and over, and it could be any number of lists of things, and we're going to read a list here in just a moment, that these things, every time you fall, pray to those things, you feel tired, you feel dirty, you feel like, once again, Lord, I've just failed you in my struggle against my sin. And he says, abstain from fleshly lusts. This has been said in many ways throughout the New Testament. Take up your cross and follow him. Uh, Turn from your wicked ways, repent and follow the Lord. Here he says, very simply, abstain from the fleshly lusts which war against your soul. The word abstain is in the present tense, which means to continually keep yourselves from these things. So if we are aware of these things, we need to set up safeguards and work against them. In Galatians 5, Paul wrote these words. You can turn there if you wish, Galatians 5, 16. He's saying very similar here to what Peter said. I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. This is just a partial list, but it's a pretty good list. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, Contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. That's for everything else he forgot to mention. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, he says here again in verse 11, I urge you, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, verse 12. Why? Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. What's he talking about there? That the Gentiles, and this is a word here, not just meaning the Gentiles as opposed to the Jews, the Gentiles is sort of a term here to speak about the unbelievers in the world. The Gentiles are watching us. The unbelieving world is watching us, us who? Believers in Christ, the church. And if you've had any interaction over time with people in the world, if you've ever invited someone to church or ever tried to talk to someone about your faith, so often what you hear as a common objection is, I don't want to go to church because there's too many hypocrites, or, you know, they've got something in mind where someone of prominence, you know, fell in sin, most often pastors or leaders. 
and they had some adultery they were covering up or something like that. And they look at that and make no mistake about it, these things mar the image of Christ. They put a black spot on the church. And so a lot of people take that and they hide behind it. And they say, because of the poor conduct of you Christians, I don't want any part of it. So while that may be an excuse to some extent, it is a real issue, is it not? That when we as believers walk in sin, but say, oh, you know, grace, grace, grace. You know, we mar the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's saying here, and he's going to say this now for this next section here and even into next week. Have your conduct honorable of the Gentiles. And here's the jump up of the whole thing. Do it for the sake of the lost. Conduct yourself honorably because there are people watching. Now, it's been said that you may be the only Bible people ever read. And that's true of us. So it's not enough just that God himself is watching us, but the unbelieving world is watching us. And so as we are passing through this life, If people know, and hopefully they do, if they know that you're a believer in Jesus Christ, at work, your neighbors, whatever it may be, make your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Why? So that when, not if, when they speak against you as evildoers, in the first century, there were trumped up charges made against Christians all the time because they didn't understand. So they they heard things like when the Christians are... Uh, having the Lord's Supper, they had heard incorrectly or misinterpreted, they said they're eating the flesh and drinking the blood of humans. And so they turned that around and that was what was spread among people. And so they said, well, I'm not going to be a part of some bizarre ritualistic cult that partakes in, in, you know, cannibalism. There were also people who said that because of the early church having love feasts, agape feasts, this is talked about in in the church to Corinth, that the the world uh, at that time turned it around and said they were having sexual orgies at church. And while these things weren't true, that's what the world said. And you know, like anything, like any rumor, as it starts to spread, people believe not the truth, and they don't come to the source, they just believe, oh, I heard, haven't we all done that? We've believed something someone's whispered in our ear as truth when we did nothing to go find out what the truth was or to simply disregard it as a rumor. And this is what was happening not only in the first century, but of course this happens to this very day. So have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles that when they speak against you as evildoers, even though doing evil is the furthest from our minds, that they may, by your good works, which they observe, they see it, glorify God in the day of visitation. So Peter's taking the long view of this, and he's saying, do the right thing because it's the right thing. Keep your conduct honorable because it's the right thing. Why? Because God will take care of it in the end. And even if they speak against you and me and against the church of Jesus Christ, in an unjust manner, with unfair accusations that are completely false, in the end, that is God's problem. But you and I can be a part of the problem, 
Or, as you've heard before, we can be a part of the solution. Being part of the problem is to take no care for how you and I live. And when, you know, <laughs> this thing happened, football season is almost over, right? But earlier in the season, we were watching a game, and probably most of you don't even care, but there was this one Christian quarterback, self-proclaimed Christian, who was losing the game, and he absolutely lost it. He went berserk, and, and even though the mic wasn't on, you could read his lips. It was so clear. And I'm just sitting there watching it like, oh my gosh. I've heard him say so many times on the podium, you know, my Lord and my Savior, Jesus Christ. And he, he lost his mind. That was public for the whole world to see, and it is on tape for all posterity. And my concern when that happened, honestly, as I saw it happening, was, God, please don't let this mar your church. Because people will watch that and say, see, Christianity is not real. He says he believes in Jesus, but it's not real. It hasn't affected his life. So our conduct is our behavior. It's how we live. Augustine is attributed with the idea of preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. God says this about these things. Whoever offers praise glorifies me and to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. Not just to reveal it to us, but through us, to the world around us. Why will they glorify God in that day? Because God will let them know. He will play it back before their eyes. He will say, no, they were worshiping me. They were honoring me. You see, they're made clean by the blood of the Lamb. It doesn't excuse our sin, but it forgives our sin. And the idea is that you and I should be different. We should be changed. We should be transformed. We should not be like the world. Our lives should not resemble the world. Our lives should resemble salvation and transformation. Why? Because we have been forgiven by Jesus Christ. The blood of the Lamb has cleansed me and cleansed you from our sins. And you see, the idea is that we should want to be careful to influence them toward Jesus. I don't know how many of you are on social media today, but there's a category of people on social media called influencers. Now, often these are people who are making money. But a lot of times what it refers to sort of subliminally is that these are people who are trying to influence trends and subcultural effects. But the idea for you and me as believers is that we are to be influencers toward Jesus Christ. We are to basically be a walking advertisement, a walking billboard for what a Christian looks like. Now, that may make you shiver in fear, but this is the reality. We are on display to the world. Jesus said to us, to his church, Therefore you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter told Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Now, before you sort of dismiss that and say, well, that was Paul speaking to a pastor, 
The principle is the same. We are to be ready in season and out of season. What does that mean? We're not off. We're never off. We're always on. We're always on as a witness for Jesus Christ. Peter says later in chapter 3, which we'll get to in a few weeks, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, same idea as here, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Even if someone is falsely accusing you, just keep doing the right thing. Keep doing the good thing. One person said this, we do not witness only with our lips. We must back up our talk with our walk. There should be nothing in our conduct that will give the unsaved ammunition to attack Christ and the gospel. Our good works must back up our good words. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now here's the thing for us and for anyone who is slandered and treated falsely, especially with respect to the gospel and the church. When someone slanders our reputation or gossips behind our back or threatens our livelihood, things can get pretty nasty. This commentator says, in my experience, our knee-jerk reactions to unfair treatment generally falls into one of three categories. First, we may adopt the aggressive pattern of blaming others, focusing on the person who did us wrong and doing whatever it takes to exact revenge. Second, we may embrace a passive pattern of feeling sorry for ourselves, becoming absorbed in self-pity, and whining constantly about our plight. Third, we may slip into a holding pattern of postponing feelings, placing our emotions on the back burner, and seething beneath a calm surface. All these natural reactions make sense from a human standpoint, but that's all they are, a natural and a human viewpoint. The idea is simply this. Our flesh may have normal reactions when people do things to us. But what this author is saying is that we are called as believers through the spirit of Jesus Christ living within us to resist the temptation to respond in those ways. Perhaps we've watched too many movies where someone is treated unjustly and they say, oh yeah, buddy, you messed with the wrong person on the wrong day. And we are not to execute any kind of vigilante justice. That is in God's hands. Another author said this, our love relationship to Jesus ought to be motivation enough for us to live godly lives in this godless world. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. There is something deeper than obedience because of duty. And that is obedience because of devotion. Obedience because of love. If a man loves me, he will keep my words. Well, in light of that, now he moves into talking about the idea of submission. Verse 13, therefore submit yourselves, so in light of all this, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the kings as supreme, 
or to governors as those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. The word submit or being subject is a very simple word and it simply means this, to order yourself or to rank yourself underneath. That's what the word subject or being subject or submit means. And we all do this, right? If you have a job, you have a boss. There's a hierarchy. Maybe you don't like it, but that's the way it is. And it exists everywhere. When you get in line, you have to wait for the others in front of you. You're subject to the line and to the pace of the person ringing your groceries or whatever it may be. <clears throat> we do this also in the government, right? And many of us may look at our government today and think they're not doing a very good job. But uh, Romans 13, which we don't have time to go look at today, that's, your, that's part of your homework assignment. You get homework every week here. Um, go read the first portion of Romans 13, and it talks about how God has ordained and set in place the governments. You say, even the evil kings? Yeah. God's intent for government is always true. Man has marred it, but he says that uh, as to govern kings, the king is supreme, or to governors as those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. In other words, the government and the kings and all of that, they're supposed to maintain order in society. There should be laws that prevent people from doing things like going out and murdering people and uh, breaking the, the front glass in of a store and going in and just ransacking it and stealing things. And he's saying here, our submission does not mean slavery or subjugation, but simply the recognition of God's authority in our lives. By, by being submissive to the government, now we'll get to it in a minute when the government tells us to do things that are against the word of God, but he's saying in just in a very high-level sense, God has put uh, the government in place to keep order. God has established the home, human government, and the church, and he has the right to tell us how these institutions should be run. God wants each of us to exercise authority but for, before we can exercise authority, we must be under authority. First, we're under God's authority. And then we're under the authority of the institutions he puts in our life. In a few moments, we're going to talk about slaves, which might in some ways correspond to our modern-day work system. For this is the will of God, verse 15, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So he's saying simply by maintaining a good witness, by doing good, by doing the right things before God, that we maintain a witness. And he says, you put to, to silence the ignorance of foolish men. The word silence means to muzzle. And when he says the ignorance of foolish men, the word ignorance means to not be knowing. So all of us are ignorant about something at some point in time, and then we become educated and we learn, and then we're no longer ignorant about whatever we learned about. With this, he's talking about the ignorance of foolish men. When the Bible speaks of fools or being foolish, uh, you may remember verses in the Old Testament like this, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Or a senseless man does not uh, know, and a fool does not understand. And I can't even go to the Proverbs. Forty-four times in the Proverbs, the word fool is used. 
And so what he's saying here is that when we do the right things for the right reasons before God, and we don't do them as Jesus said, we don't do our righteous acts so that others can see us and kind of go, oh, aren't you such a wonderful person? We don't do it to get a reward from people. Our reward is in heaven from the Lord. So whatever we do is to please the Lord. And that's the idea behind this whole thing. We do what we do to please God, not to please people. However, people are watching us, and that's what this is talking about. So, when you have things like, say, Daniel, if you remember his story, there in Daniel chapter 1, he and his friends refused to obey the king's dietary regulations. But rather than rising up and making a big stink, if you go back and you read that story, what did they do? They very kindly requested, could we please try something different? Could we experiment with this under your supervision uh, to, to the eunuch who was supervising them? Give us an opportunity. And if, if the king's idea here is, as it was, to sort of prepare them so that they could be trained up in, in the ways of the kingdom that they had now been taken captive to, he said, well, let us have the diet that we'd like to have, and as long as we exhibit the effects that you desire, then let us do that. And so, of course, that eunuch did that, their supervisor, and of course, God blessed them and granted their request. But in so doing, they made themselves subject to the government and to the ruling authority. They were rebels, they were careful, they were not rebels, rebels rather, they were careful to not embarrass the official who was in charge. And even though they stood their ground gently and firmly, they glorified God and they honored the king. That's just one example. There are many others. Notice in verse 17 here, he says, honor all people. You mean even the weird, wacky people who are on the left? Yeah. Why? So that you might win them to Christ. Love the brotherhood. Why? Because Jesus said, if you love one another, the world will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Fear God. Why? Because that drives everything. For the believer, that drives our behavior. Because we fear God in that healthy, respectful, reverential way. Honor the king. Why? Because we are putting forth an example for the world to see. One person said this, a true Christian submits himself to authority because he is first of all submitted to Jesus Christ. He uses his freedom as a tool to build and not as a weapon to fight. A good example of this is the attitude of Nehemiah who willingly gave up his own rights that he might help his people and restore the walls of Jerusalem. Another great example with Nehemiah. It is important that we respect the office even though we cannot respect the man or the woman in the office. As much as possible, we should seek to cooperate with the government and obey the law, but we must never allow the law to make us violate our conscience or disobey God's word. Unfortunately, some zealous but ignorant Christians use these differences as opportunities for conflict and loud sermons about, quote, freedom and have we ever heard this term, separation of church and state? Understand, we obey God first. Yes, we are submitting, or we are submissive and subject to the institutions around us, but we always honor God above those things. 
So moving into verse 18, maybe your Bible has a heading in it, something like submission to masters. Verse 18, servants or slaves, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and to the gentle, but also the harsh. Now understand the context into which Peter is writing is that in that day, between 25 and 40% of the general population were actually slaves. That's a pretty high number. So as he's writing to these slaves who were receiving the gospel as the gospel was being preached and they were coming to Christ, he says to you, here's what you need to do. Here's how you maintain a witness. Be submissive to your masters with all fear or respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the harsh. Well, you mean I should submit my back and let them beat me and, and harshly abuse me? Well, in being submissive or subjecting yourself to the rank, you're understanding first that you're submitting yourself to God. God, for whatever reason, and this is where we have the rub in our lives, allowed those people and may allow you to be in hard or difficult situations. What do I do in those situations? We submit to the Lord, we cry out to God, and we su submit ourselves or subject ourselves to this harsh treatment. Why? Because they need to see Christ. He says, but also to the harsh. Other translations would render that to the unreasonable or to the unjust. And here's the reason why, verse 19. Why? For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. We maintain a right heart before God. When he says, for this is commendable, the King James rendered that thankworthy. The word for commendable is actually charis, which is grace. For this is grace, if because of conscience toward God, which should be what drives us, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. So we need to understand things like the word tells us over and over. We're going to read some verses in a minute. Don't try to repay. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, thus saith the Lord. We entrust ourselves to God, even in suffering at the unjust hands of those who may be even, to put in our modern context, the bosses that we work for, or the places that we work. For what credit is it, verse 20, if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently, meaning you deserved it. You did something wrong, and you were punished, or you were disciplined. And if you take that, well, you're just getting what you deserve. He says, but when you do good and suffer, in other words, you're suffering for doing what is right, for standing up for the Lord, for being honest, or whatever it might be, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. This is grace before God. Because you're suffering for doing good. Do we understand these things? Do you remember the thief on the cross beside Jesus when he was crucified? One of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed Jesus, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. He was obviously mocking. 
But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you you are under the same condemnation? In other words, we're all hanging here. We're going to die for crimes we may or may not have committed. And he says about Jesus, And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he turned to Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say to him? Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. In that moment, Jesus allowed that man because his heart had changed. And Jesus, of course, knew that. He said, you'll be with me in paradise. This other dude, not so much. What about when Jesus said, if someone demands that you carry his burden one mile, that you take it two, meaning you go the extra mile? One person said this, the commendable thing or the grace thing is not the suffering, but being so committed to God's will, which is the good that you're doing, that devotion to him overrides personal comfort. This is our commitment to our Lord. Once again, the human tendency is to fight back and to demand our rights, but that's the natural response of the unsaved person. We must do much more than they do. Anybody can fight back. It takes a spirit-filled Christian to submit and to let God fight the battles for them. There's a scripture here, Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Then he talks about loving your enemies. In Romans 12, here's what Paul had to say about the same topic. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Then he says, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, meaning let it go. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, thus says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so we are to allow these things to happen. Why? So that God might be glorified. So that there might be a witness to Jesus Christ. So that we might have an opportunity with our lives as well as our words to say all glory to God in the midst of something that we are suffering and going through. There's a couple of places, one in Ephesians 6, one in Colossians 3, that are very similar. I'm just going to read one to you. Colossians 3, bond servants, employees, if you will, 
Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. In other words, don't get confused and think you're serving that boss or that uh, management chain or that company. You're serving Christ. Everywhere you go, everything you do, you are serving Christ. And that's something we need to adopt and we need to understand. No matter what you do, you are serving Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. A German philosopher wrote, show me the effect of your... Show me the effect your redemption has had in your life, and I might be interested in your Redeemer. That's the power of our witness, of how we conduct ourselves. You see, your relationship with God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ is more important than any trial or any difficulty or any pain or any suffering that you experience. Our relationship with him is what matters. And when he says, if you take it patiently, the literal rendering would be, if you keep on enduring in the midst of what is happening in your life. This kind of endurance is only made possible by being consciously aware of God's presence with you and with me. And by continually trusting him to address those rights or those wrongs that are happening and those people who have trampled us underfoot and treated us harshly. A little bit earlier in chapter 1, Peter said, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that, or for the purpose, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, God is looking at that. God's looking at our heart. He's looking at our motives. And because we serve Him and we keep our eyes on Him, then we don't worry about what happens to them. Another example that we could consider that may be helpful is in Acts chapter 14. This is where Paul was on his first missionary journey. And what is Paul attempting to do? Share the gospel with people. Plant churches. Acts chapter 14, verse 19. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, having persuaded the multitudes. So they rose up. They were in a frenzy because he was preaching Christ. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. So that was their response to the gospel. We're going to kill the guy who's preaching. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up. And I understand this passage as I read it to me, and God sort of revived him. I don't know if he was dead or not, but God raised him up. So when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, what did they do? 
they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. They went back through the city that tried to kill him. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Paul could have said, man, I'm never going there again. I'm going you know, I'm I'm to go read the passage in Genesis about how God rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'm going to pray that for them because of what they did to me. We would probably read that and go, yeah, Paul, all right, do it, man. But he didn't do that. What did he do? He went back to the very people who tried to kill him and preached the gospel to those same people again. What would be our tendency? To avoid it like the plague, right? Go the other direction. Or consider this, maybe we would go the other direction because we still have enough of the world in us. We're quick to defend ourselves and when somebody steps on our toes, crosses the line, ignores boundaries, or intrudes in our personal domain. Listen to this. This, this. this is why I'm reading this to you. We can find a lawyer's phone number quicker than a passage of Scripture. Calling us to endure hardship. Stop and think. When was the last time you took it on the chin for the cause of Christ? When did you last surrender your rights for the deliberate purpose of following Christ's example? How rare that is, especially in a culture that focuses on fighting back and getting even. You see, this is a part of what submission is all about because they look at us as crazy. But what we are is not crazy. We're submitted to a God who loves us. Verse 21, for to this you were called, listen, for, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. There's our example, that you should follow his steps. Now, these next few verses, what does Peter do? He goes back all the way to Isaiah 53, and he pulls not the whole thing, but various sections out. And he just brings it to our mind, and he says, this was our example. This is why we think this is way. way. This is what our salvation means to us. He says, Jesus, verse 22, he committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore his, our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. You see, this is the example that Jesus has given to us. You see, Jesus proved that a person can be in the will of God, dearly loved by God, walking in the grace and the favor of God, and still suffer unjustly. This is why the prosperity gospel is so false and so dangerous. Because it says, if you're suffering, and if you're going through something, well, it's probably because you, you have a lack of faith in your own life. Or it's probably because you haven't been giving enough to the church. And they twist it and they manipulate it for their own ends and it's false. Don't listen to it. If Jesus Christ himself, if the first century apostles themselves suffered for doing what was right, how much more so will we? And our witness, I think you'd have to agree, I'll be the first to admit, 
My witness is nothing like Paul's or Peter's or John's or any of those guys. So if we suffer a little bit because I wear a shirt that says Jesus or something on it, and people come up to me as they're doing today on the street, I'm offended by that. You can't wear that shirt. Well, you know what? That's okay. We don't retaliate. We just share the good news of the gospel with people. We tell them that Jesus loves them and he died for their sins and we invite them to come to him. You want to know what your calling is? Well, here's an answer. For to this you were called. What is this? Trusting God while suffering for doing what is right. All of us have been called to live under the authority of some kind of something, government, family relationships, work relationships, church relationships. And unfortunately, a time will come when we suffer somewhere along the way in one of these places. But we need to understand something. When we suffer in this life, is it for Jesus Christ? That doesn't mean we look the other way when wrong is happening. That doesn't mean we shouldn't speak up if something wrong is happening. But we need to understand something that Jesus suffered and left us an example. Notice it says in verse 22, how did Jesus handle pain and suffering? Now, of course, he was the Messiah. But Isaiah 53, he committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, when people said harsh or mean things to him, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. He committed himself to him who judges rightly. There's something to underline today or highlight in your Bible, verse 23. He committed himself to him who judges rightly. In other words, he trusted God. We say often, don't we? Trust God. And we, we sometimes strike that off as cliche, but it's not. It's true. It's what we need to do. Whatever you are dealing with today, and by the way, I have no idea what any of you are dealing with in your, the deepest recesses of your hearts. The call of God is to trust Him, to lean upon Him, to cry out to Him. That, again, I can't make these things happen. Psalm, the psalm we read today was about that, wasn't it? Lean into God, trust God, trust Him. God will take care of these things in due time. You know, we have that beautiful verse, we all love to quote, we probably have it cross-stitched and somewhere up in our house. Romans eight twenty-eight. what does it say? But we know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love Him and to those who are the called according to His purpose. That's not a platitude. It's true. And God will do that for you and me, even in the midst of the worst, most trying, difficult circumstances. Didn't Jesus say on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? Verse 24, he, uh, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Certainly that healing, first and foremost, is spiritual. There are many who sort of debate this, well, but because of the suffering of Jesus, that there is healing for us today, and they like to name and claim that. Well, it may be true, and, I, and there are certainly, God still heals today. But more than anything, 
when you and I stand before him face to face, just as we, we sang in that song, we will be healed fully and completely. God may deliver us from, but so often he delivers us through. And that's his prerogative, not our choice. And in verse 25 here, as we come to the end, he says, For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. He's not talking about those who fell away and came back. He's talking about God's heart for every person, every human being, is that they would come to him and know him. What he's saying here is, come home to your maker. Come home to your Lord. Trust in Jesus. You were like sheep going astray. We all know this. When you look back on your life before you trusted in Christ, this was categorically who we were, just like sheep going astray. He says, but you have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. The word shepherd is the word for pastor, poiman, and the word overseer is the word for bishop, which means to, to oversee or to care for. You see, in the Old Testament, if you remember this, about the sacrificial system, the, the sheep were sacrificed for the shepherds or for the people, right? The sheep had to become the sacrifice, and you had to find that one spotless, blameless sheep, and that was your offering on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. But in the New Testament on the cross, the shepherd died for the sheep. He flipped it. Why? Because he was the only one who could pay for our sin. You see, this is why you and I can stand and not fall apart when something's going on in our lives. Because of the shepherd, the great overseer of our souls. Don't make the mistake in your feelings of despair and anguish of going to a place and saying, well, God doesn't love me and he doesn't care. That is a lie from Satan, or at best, it's your flesh. Because the word tells us here, as it says in many places, God loves you. You've now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. You see, I have a sovereign Lord who loves me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Is he your shepherd? Is he your overseer? Is he keeping watch over your soul? The answer is rhetorical. It's a resounding yes, he is. But the question is, will you, will I allow him to be God in my heart, in my life, in my soul, my mind, and my strength? Will I reciprocate all that he has done for me? which are immeasurable and not repayable, will I reciprocate by loving him with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength? 
You see, you will never know the peace of God until you, ha- uh, you will never experience the peace of God until you have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And you need to allow him to be not just your savior, but your Lord, your master. What is submission all about? Really, it's about submission to Jesus Christ. And if we get that right, everything else is a lot easier, isn't it? And this is going to come back to us next week as he now moves into the home. He's talked about uh, the world. He's talked about government. He's talked about the workplace or being a slave. And now he's going to talk about what it's like in the home. And that's what we'll talk about next week. So submission is really about loving Jesus more than I love myself. Submission is about loving Jesus more than I love the people around me. Submission is about loving Jesus more than I love my own comfort and my own convenience. It's true. And if we get that right, and if we understand how much he loves us, it just makes it so much easier. Lord, we love you today because you first loved us. And we're so thankful that you have redeemed us and saved us. We're thankful that you love us. You've demonstrated your love and that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And so today, for all of us here listening, we pray that if there be any among us or listening online who have never trusted you as their Savior and as their Lord, we pray that this might be the moment where they simply say to you, Lord, help me, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, I want to come to you and believe in you and put my hope and my trust in you. And as they do that right now, Lord, you welcome them graciously into your kingdom. And it really is that simple. As they turn from their old ways and they turn to you. And they join the ranks of millions of people who have believed in Jesus. And Lord, you tell us when we are born again in that moment that something happens within us. We're forgiven. We're clean. The burden is lifted. The guilt is gone. And we now begin to experience love as we never have before. And God, would you reveal yourself to them as well as to us in the most kind, awesome, loving way, even in this moment. And for those of us, Lord, this morning who know you, but maybe we've just been struggling with stuff or with people or with these unjust situations, God, may we press into you this morning. May we lay it all down at the foot of the cross and may we reach up to you, to your loving arms and remember that you are our hope and that one day this will all be made right. I know we want it right now, but we can't have it. This is not microwave Christianity. It is trusting in the faithful creator who loves us and who always knows what is best for us. We trust in a father who will never leave us or forsake us. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.